Section 9 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 8, Great Rulers, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Cardinal de Richelieu, Part 1. A.D. 1585-1642. Absolutism. Cardinal de Richelieu is an illustration of what can be done for the prosperity and elevation of a country by a man whom we personally abhor, and whose character is stained by glaring defects and vices. If there was a statesman in French history who was preeminently unscrupulous, selfish, tyrannical, and cruel, that statesman was the able and wily priest who ruled France during the latter years of Louis the Thirteenth. And yet it would be difficult to find a ruler who has rendered more signal services to the state or to the monarch whom he served. He extricated France from the perils of anarchy and laid the foundation for the grandeur of the monarchy under Louis the Fourteenth. It was his mission to create a strong government, when only a strong government could save the kingdom from disintegration. So that absolutism, much as we detest it, seems to have been one of the needed forces of the 17th century. It was needed in France to restrain the rapacity and curtail the overgrown power of feudal nobles, whose cabals and treasons were fatal to the interests of law and order. The assassination of Henry IV was a great calamity. The government fell into the hands of his widow, Marie de Medici, a weak and frivolous woman. Under her regency, all kinds of evils accumulated. So many conflicting interests and animosities existed that there was little short of anarchy. There were not popular insurrections and rebellions, for the people were ignorant and were in bondage to their feudal masters. But the kingdom was rent by the rivalries and intrigues of the great nobles, who, no longer living in their isolated castles but in the precincts of the court, fought duels in the streets, plundered the royal treasury, robbed jewelers and coachmakers, paid no debts, and treated the people as if they were dogs or cattle. They claimed all the great offices of state and all high commands in the army and navy, sold justice, tampered with the law, quarreled with the parliaments. Indeed were a turbulent, haughty, and powerful aristocracy who felt that they were above all law and all restraint. They were not only engaged in perpetual intrigues, but even in treasonable correspondence with the enemies of their country. They disregarded the honor of the kingdom and attempted to divide it into principalities for their children. The Guises wished to establish themselves in province, the Montmorencies in Languedoc, the Longevilles in Picardy. The Duke of Epernon sought to retain the sovereignty of Guienne, and the Duke of Vendôme to secure the sovereignty of Brittany. One wanted to be constable, another admiral, a third to be governor of a province, in order to tyrannize and enrich themselves like Roman proconsuls. Every outrage was shamelessly perpetrated by them with impunity because they were too powerful to be punished. They assassinated their enemies, filled the cities with their armed retainers, and made war even on the government, so that all central power was a mockery. The queen regent was humiliated and made contemptible, and was forced, in her turn and in self-defense, to intrigues and cabals, and sought protection by setting the nobles up against each other, and thus dividing their forces. Even the parliaments, which were courts of law, were full of antiquated prejudices, and sought only to secure their own privileges, at one time siding with the queen regent, and then with the factious nobles. The Huguenots were the best people of the land, but they were troublesome, since they possessed cities and fortresses, and erected an imperium in imperio. In their synods and assemblies, they usurped the attributes of secular rulers, and discussed questions of peace and war. They entered into formidable conspiracies, and fomented the troubles and embarrassments of the government. The abjuration of Henry the Fourth had thinned their ranks and deprived them of court influence. 
No great leaders remained, since they had been seduced by fashion. The Huguenots were a disappointed and embittered party, hard to please and hard to be governed, full of fierce resentments and soured by old recollections. They had obtained religious liberty, but with this they were not contented. Their spirit was not unlike that of the Jacobins in England after the Stuarts were expelled from the throne. So all things combined to produce a state of anarchy and discontent. Feudalism had done its work. It was a good thing on the dissolution of the Roman Empire, when society was resolved to its original elements, when barbarism on one hand and superstition on the other made the Middle Ages funereal, dismal, violent, despairing. But commerce, arts, and literature had introduced a new era, still unformed, a vast chaos of conflicting forces, and yet redeemed by reviving intelligence and restless daring. One thing which society needed in that transition period was a strong government in the hands of kings to restore law and develop national resources. Now amid all these evils, Richelieu grew up. Under the guise of levity and pleasure and good nature, he studied and comprehended all these parties and factions, and hated them all. All alike were hostile to the central power, which he saw was necessary to the preservation of law and to the development of the resources of the country. Moreover, he was ambitious of power himself, which he loved as Michelangelo loved art and Palestrina loved music. Power was his master passion and consumed all other passions, and he resolved to gain it in any way he could, unscrupulously, by flatteries, by duplicities, by sycophancies, by tricks, by lies, even by services. That was his end. He cared nothing for means. He was a politician. The progress of his elevation is interesting but hideous. Armand Jean Duplay was born in 1585, of a noble family of high rank. He was destined for the army, but a bishopric falling to the gift of his family, he was made a priest. He early distinguished himself in his studies, for he was precocious and had great abilities. At twenty he was doctor of the Sorbonne, and before his twenty-one he received from Pope Paul V the emblems of spiritual power as a prelate of the church. But he was too young to be made a bishop, according to the canons. A difficulty, however, which he easily surmounted. He told a lie to the Pope, and then begged for absolution. He then attached himself to the worthless favorite of the Queen Regent, Cosini, one of her countrymen, and threw him to the Queen herself, Marie de' Medici, who told him her secrets, which he betrayed when it suited his interests. When Louis XIII attained his majority, Richelieu paid his court to de Lyons, who was then all-powerful with the king, and who secured him a cardinal's hat. And when this miserable favorite died, this falconer, this keeper of birds, yet duke, peer, governor, and minister, Richelieu wound himself around the king, Louis XIII, the most impotent of all the Bourbons, made himself necessary, and became minister of foreign affairs. And his great rule began, 1624. During all these seventeen years of office climbing, Richelieu was, to all appearance, the most amiable man in France. Everybody liked him, and everybody trusted him. He was full of amenities, promises, bows, smiles, and flatteries. He always advocated the popular side with reigning favorites, courted all the great ladies, was seen in all the fashionable salons, had no offensive opinions, was polite to everybody, was non-committal, fond of games and spectacles. Frivolous among fools, learned among scholars, grave among functionaries, devout among prelates, cunning as a fox, brave as a lion, supple as a dog, all things to all men. An Alcibiades, a Jesuit, with no apparent animosities, handsome, witty, brilliant, preacher, courtier, student. 
as full of hypocrisy as an egg is of meat, with eyes wide open and thoughts disguised, all eyes and no heart, reserved or communicative as it suited his purpose. This was that arch-intriguer who was seeking all the while not the scepter of the king, but the power of the king. Should you say that this non-committal, agreeable, and amiable politician, who quarreled with nobody and revealed nothing to anybody, who had cheated all parties by turns, was the man to save France, to extricate his country from all the evils to which I have alluded, to build up a great throne, even while he who sat upon it was utterly contemptible, and to make that throne the first in Europe, and to establish absolutism as one of the needed forces of the seventeenth century? Yet so it was, and his work was all the more difficult when the character of the king is considered. Louis the Thirteenth was a different kind of man from his father Henry the Fourth and his grandson Louis the Fourteenth. He had no striking characteristics but feebleness and timidity and love of ignoble pleasures. He had no ambitions or powerful passions, was feeble and sickly from a child, ruled at one time by his mother, and then by a falconer, and apparently taking but little interest in affairs of state. But if it was difficult to gain ascendancy over such a frivolous and inglorious Sardanapalus, it was easy to retain it when this ascendancy was once acquired. For Richelieu made him comprehend the dangers which menaced his life and his throne, that some very able man must be entrusted with supreme delegated power, who would rule for the benefit of him he served a servant and yet a master like metternich in austria after the wars of napoleon a man whose business and aim were to exalt absolutism on a throne moreover he so complicated public affairs that his services were indispensable nobody could fill his place also it must be remembered that the king was isolated and without counsellors whom he could trust after the death of de luynes he had no bosom friend he was surrounded with perplexities and secret enemies his mother, who had been regent, defied his authority. His brothers sought to wear his crown. The nobles conspired against his throne. The Protestants threatened another civil war. The parliaments thought only of retaining their privileges. The finances were disordered. The treasures which Henry the Fourth had accumulated had been squandered in bribing the great nobles. Foreign enemies had invaded the soil of France. Evils and dangers were accumulating on every side, with such terrific force as to jeopardize the very existence of the monarchy and one necessity became apparent, even to the weak mind of the king, that he must delegate his power to some able man who, though he might rule unscrupulously and tyrannically, would yet be faithful to the crown, and establish the central power for the benefit of his heirs and the welfare of the state. Now Richelieu was just the man he needed, just such a man as the times required, a man raised up to do important work, like Cromwell in England, like Bismarck in Prussia, like Cavour in Italy. Doubtless a great hypocrite, yet sincere in the conviction that a strong government was the great necessity of his country. A great scoundrel, yet a patriotic and wise statesman who loved his country with the ardor of a Mirabeau, while nobody loved him. Besides, he loved absolutism, both because he was by nature a tyrant, and because he was a member of the Roman Catholic hierarchy. He called to mind old Rome under the Caesars, and medieval Rome under the popes, and what a central authority had effected for civilization in times of anarchy, and in times of darkness and superstition and the king to him was a sort of vice-regent of divine power, clothed in authority based on divine right, the idea of kings in the Middle Ages. The state was his, to be managed as a man manages his farm, as a South Carolinian once managed his slaves. The idea that political power properly emanates from the people, the idea of Rousseau and Jefferson, never once occurred to him, nor even political power in the hands of aristocrats, fettered by a constitution and amenable to the nation. 
a constitutional monarchy existed nowhere except perhaps in england unrestricted and absolute power in the hands of a king was the only government he believed in the king might be feeble in which case he could delegate his power to ministers or he might be imbecile in which case he might be virtually dethroned but his royal rights were sacred his authority incontestable and consecrated by all usage and precedent and yet while richelieu would uphold the authority of the crown as supreme and absolute he would not destroy the prestige of the aristocracy for he was a nobleman himself he belonged to their class he believed in caste in privileges in monopolies therefore he would not annul either rank or honor the nobles were welcome to retain their stars and orders and ribbons and heraldic distinctions even their parks and palaces and falcons and hounds they were a favored class that feudalism had introduced and ages had endorsed but even they must be subservient to the crown from which their honors emanated and hence to order and law of which the king was the keeper they must be the subjects of the government as well as allies and supporters the government was royal not aristocratic the privileges of the nobility were social rather than political although the great offices of state were entrusted to them as a favor not as a right as simply servants of a royal master whose interests they were required to defend some of them were allied by blood with the sovereign and received marks of his special favor but their authority was derived from him richelieu was not unpatriotic he wished to see france powerful united and prosperous but powerful as a monarchy united under a king and prosperous for the benefit of the privileged orders not for the plebeian people who toiled for supercilious masters the people were of no account politically were as unimportant as slaves to be protected in life and property that they might thrive for the benefit of those who ruled them so when richelieu became prime minister and felt secure in his seat knowing how necessary to the king his services were he laid aside his amiable manners as a politician and determined as a statesman to carry out remorselessly and rigidly his plans for the exaltation of the monarchy and the moment he spoke at the council board his genius predominated all saw that a great power had risen that he was a master and would be obeyed and would execute his plans with no sentimentalities but coldly fixedly like a man of blood and iron indifferent to all obstacles he was a man who could rule and therefore on carlyle's theory a man who ought to rule because he was strong there is something imposing i grant in this executive strength it does not make a man interesting but it makes him feared every ruler in fact every man entrusted with executive power especially in stormy times should be resolute unflinching with a will dominating over everything with courage pluck backbone be he king or prime minister or the superintendent of a railway or director of a lunatic asylum or president of a college no matter whether the sphere be large or small the administration of power requires energy will promptness of action without favor and without fear and if such a person rules well he will be respected but if he rules unwisely if capricious unjust cruel vindictive he may be borne for a while until patience is exhausted and indignation becomes terrible a passion of vengeance like that which overthrew strafford wise tyrants like peter and frederick the great will be endured from their devotion to public interests but unwise tyrants ruling for self-interest or pleasure will be hurled from power or assassinated like nero or commodus as the only way to get rid of the miseries they inflict now of the class of wise and enlightened tyrants was richelieu his greatness was in his will sagacity watchfulness and devotion to public affairs factions could not oust him because he was strong the king would not part with him because he was faithful posterity would not curse him because he laid the foundation of the political greatness of his country i do not praise his system of government 
on abstract principles i feel that it is against the liberties of mankind nor is it in accordance with the progress of government in our modern times all the successive changes which reforms and revolutions have wrought have been towards representative and constitutional governments as in england and france in the nineteenth century absolutism or caesarism is only adapted to people in primitive or anarchical states of society as in old rome or rome under the popes it is at best a necessary tyranny made so by the disorders and evils of life it can be commended only when men are worse than governments when they are to be coerced like wild beasts or lunatics or scoundrels when there is universal plunder lying cheating and murdering when laws are a mockery and when demagogues reign when all public interests are scandalously sacrificed for private emolument then absolutism may for a time be necessary but only for a time unless we assume that men can never govern themselves in that state of society into which france was plunged during the regency of marie de medici and at which i have glanced absolutism was perhaps a needed force then richelieu its great modern representative arose a model statesman in the eyes of peter the great but he was not to reign and trample all other powers beneath his feet without a memorable struggle three great forces were arrayed against him these were the huguenots the nobles and the parliaments the protestant the feudal and the legal elements of society in france the people at least the peasantry did not rise up against him they were powerless and too unenlightened the priests sustained him and the common people acquiesced in his rigid rule for he established law and order he began his labors in behalf of absolutism by suppressing the huguenots that was the only political party which was urgent for its rights they were an intelligent party of tradesmen and small farmers they were plebeian but conscientious and aspiring they were not contented alone to worship god according to the charter which henry the fourth had granted but they sought political power and they were so unfortunate as to be guilty of cabals and intrigues inconsistent with a central power they were factious and not disposed to submit to legitimate authority they had declined in numbers and influence they had even denigrated in religious life but they were still powerful and dangerous foes they had retreated to their strong fortress of la rochelle resolved if attacked to fight once again the whole power of the monarchy they put themselves in a false position they wanted more than the edict of nantes had guaranteed unfortunately for them they had no leaders worthy to marshal their forces fashion and the influence of the court has seduced their men of rank nor had they the enthusiasm which had secured victory at ivory nor could they contend openly in the field they were obliged to entrench themselves in an impregnable fortress there they deemed they could defy their enemy they even invoked the aid of england and thus introduced foreign enemies on the soil of france which was high treason they put themselves in the attitude of rebels against the government and so long as english ships with supplies could go in and out of their harbor they would not be conquered richelieu clad in mail a warrior priest surveyed with disgust their strong defenses and their open harbor his artillery was of no use nor his lines of circumvallation so he put his brain in motion and studied quintus courteous he remembered what alexander did at the siege of tyre he constructed a vast dike of stone and timber and iron across the harbor in some places twelve hundred feet deep and thus cut off all egress and ingress the english under buckingham departed unable to render further assistance the capture then was only a work of time genius had hemmed the city in and famine soon did the rest cats dogs and vermin became luxuries 
the starving women beseeched the inexorable enemy for permission to retire they remembered the mercy that henry the fourth had shown at the siege of paris but war in the hands of masters has no favors to grant conquerors have no tears the huguenots as rebels had no hope but in unconditional submission they yielded it reluctantly but not until famine had done its work and they never raised their heads again their spirit was broken they were conquered and at the mercy of the crown destined in the next reign to be cruelly and most wantonly persecuted hunted as heretics by dragonades and executioners at the bidding of louis the fourteenth until four hundred thousand were executed or driven from the kingdom end of section nine